Welcome back to Food Toxicology. I'm Greg Muller, the instructor for this course. Last time, if you recall, what we did is uh, try to uh, look at the safety assessment of food additives. Uh, one of the things we tried to do is give a brief background of the scope of the use of food additives in the U.S. food supply, and then go through uh, from a regulatory science perspective the approach to assessing uh, the relative risks of, of using these in the human food chain. One of the things that uh, we did was to look at a little bit of case studies of uh, specific chemicals that might be uh, in uh, the human food chain. What we're going to try to do today is actually focus on about a half dozen food additives and uh, review their toxicology. Our learning objectives here today uh, is very simple and straightforward. We're going to try to explore some of the the national and international agencies, uh, ones that we've mentioned before, but look at uh, how they actually study uh, the safety of food additives. We'll try to review as well six uh, compounds in terms of their use, their safety review, and their toxicology. Uh, these uh, food additives uh, will include saccharin, cyclamate, uh, aspartame, uh, BHA, BHT, sulfites, which we learned a lot about in our allergy uh, analysis, and MSG, or monosodium uh, glutamate. Well, in terms of uh, the agencies uh, and the safety of food additives, uh, there's uh, several of these uh, internationally and nationally in terms of scientific organizations and regulatory bodies. Uh, the Joint uh, Food and Agriculture Organization, World Health Organization, Expert Committee on Food Additives, uh, JECFA, is uh, uh, one of these that has uh, international responsibilities. Um, they were created uh, in 1950 by the Food and Agriculture Organization of the United States of the United Nations and the World Health Organization. It assesses uh, some of the food safety associated with uh, these additives uh, from an international uh, point of view. Uh, they tend to use uh, independent scientists, uh, international uh, scientists from various uh, uh, food producing and food importing countries. Now, there is also the um, Food Alimentarius Commission. It was established in 1960. It established uh, international food standards, and this also uh, was the, uh, part of the basis or the gen genesis of this was uh, for international trade in food. Uh, the Codex General Standard for Food Additives, uh, the GSFA is an online database. I've given you a link there so you can get an idea of what uh, this particular document uh, does in terms of providing a tremendous reference on uh, allowable limits and the safety of food additives. Uh, the idea, again, is to uh, protect health and also promote um, the uh, international food trade. The toxicology evaluation is done, again, by independent scientists uh, through the JECFA. Another group associated with uh, re uh, reviewing the safety of food additives is uh, the FASEB, the Federation of American Societies for Experimental Biology. It does uh, the safety uh, evaluations for FDA, and it's done this since 1958. Uh, it did much of the GRASS generally recognized as safe and prior sanctioned review for FDA. Uh, as independent scientists, they're outside of the political dynamics, so to speak, that uh, government agencies such as FDA uh, might get pulled in different directions via the forces of politics. Uh, I've given you a link here uh, to the FDA Food Ingredients and Packaging website that also will help you get a little bit of background about how these uh, 
uh, different societies do do many of the risk assessments associated with food additives. In terms of uh, the uh, European Economic Community, we have the Scientific Community for Committee for Food, the SCF. This is uh, close to the FDA, but it's for the entire European uh, community. It does review s food safety issues, and it uses independent scientists in a very similar fashion. Now, what we're going to try and do today is, is do a, a fairly uh, brief focus on uh, six food additives. Uh, these have a little bit of history. Uh, each one of these uh, in their time has uh, grabbed headlines. Uh, you'll recognize all of these names. Uh, and in fact, most people uh, in terms of the general public will recognize these names in terms of common food additives that have had uh, a significant amount of controversy and uh, potential uh, uh, public health impact. Uh, these food additives include saccharin cyclamate, uh, aspartame, BHA, BHT, the phenolics, antioxidants, uh, sulfites, uh, which generates a little bit of allergic response in some people, and MSG, uh, or uh, the, the active ingredient for Chinese restaurant syndrome. For saccharin, uh, it was actually uh, discovered uh, uh, in uh, 1859, uh, discovered accidentally. It was found to be about 300 times uh, sweeter than sugar. Uh, the chemical formula uh, for saccharin is uh, on this particular slide. It's uh, highly regarded because it's heat stable and has a long shelf life. Uh, it was originally used for diabetics that had to limit their sugar intake. Um, it does have a slightly bitter or metallic aftertaste for those of you that have used saccharin. Um, it is synergistic uh, with other sweeteners and it has been formulated in one ten ratio with another artificial sweetener, cyclamate. Saccharin was uh, controversial uh, from the beginning. Uh, Harvey Wiley, the uh, chief chemist of the Food and Drug Administration uh, that we talked about in the late 1800s, early 1900s, actually wanted to ban this uh, uh, as a food additive based on scientific studies available at the time. Uh, because it was in such wide use in the early part of the century, uh, there was a significant amount of public uh, outcry, including uh, the comment from then-President Theodore Roosevelt that anybody who says saccharin is injurious to health is an idiot. Um, it was banned for a short time. It was reinstated uh, in World War I, and this had a lot to do with just resources management and rationing uh, of uh, sugar uh, resources. It was used extensively in World War II as a sweetener as well. In 1958, uh, because of all of the uh, changes to the FFDCA, it was actually given uh, grass status as prior sanctioned food additive. In 1972, there were two studies published that indicated uh, that it was a bladder carcinogen in rats, and this started a chain of events uh, that at that time was pretty significant in terms of the major media outlets in the United States. It was immediately removed from uh, grass status in 1977. It was banned by FDA um, because it had such a use in terms of uh, limiting dietary uh, calorie intake and use in diabetics. There was a tremendous public outcry. Uh, there was a million letters to Congress, 100,000 letters to the FDA in terms of uh, uh, wanting to uh, reinstate saccharin in, as a food additive in the human food chain. 
1977 Saccharin Study and Labeling Act declared a moratorium on the ban, again, politics intervening in terms of congressional politics. It required a warning label on products. Uh, this generated uh, several hundred studies uh, on saccharin. Uh, there was epidemiological studies and chronic bioassays. Uh, essentially, the findings of these studies, there was no effect in humans. In the year 2000, the ban on saccharin was, in fact, repealed. Its acute toxicity is about 15 to 17 grams per kilogram in the rat and mouse, um, and in the rabbit, about 5 uh, 0.8 grams per kilogram. This is in the range of, uh, uh, in terms of human exposure, uh, as, as non-toxic if you consider the weight uh, of a human being for acute toxicity uh, and the potential exposure. The acceptable daily intake uh, based on no effect levels from uh, FAO and the World Health Organization has been calculated at 2.5 milligrams uh, per kilogram body weight. In terms of our conclusions about saccharin, uh, it does cause uh, bladder cancer in rats. We do know that. Um, we find that it is uh, in that category of epigenetic carcinogens that we reviewed. It's a promoter chemical. Uh, it is, is, appears to have a fairly high species specificity uh, due to a, a unique uh, protein in uh, the target animal. Uh, in terms of uh, rodent assays and carcinogen studies, these high doses, long exposure, uh, many of the media outlets that reported on this uh, kept reporting on the fact that you would have to drink uh, cases and cases of saccharin-laced uh, products, uh, soda, for example, uh, per day in order to have the same dose uh, in the rat studies. Uh, the mechanism of uh, toxicity is cell proliferation for saccharin. Our next sweetener is cyclamate, and this was discovered in 1937 by a graduate student. It's about 30 times sweeter than sugar. We have the chemical formula on this slide as well. It's got a less bitter aftertaste uh, than saccharin. Uh, it is heat stable. That's a good indicator that it can be used uh, uh, in cooking. Uh, not all sweeteners uh, are f heat stable. It's 20 times cheaper than saccharin, so it has a tremendous uh, amount of uh, uh, market uh, uh, potential. Uh, in uh, 1950, it was uh, marketed as a dietetic aid by Abbott Laboratories. In 1955, National Academy of Sciences reported it as safe for human consumption. In 1958, it was actually given grass status under the uh, FDCA uh, by the FDA. In 1968 and 70, there were two studies that uh, also showed bladder cancer in this particular, with this particular chemical compound, and in 1968, it was taken off of grass status. In 1970, it was banned uh, from all uses. And so now you see a little bit of uh, uh, some of the public outright concern in the short range of a couple of years, uh, both cyclamate and saccharin uh, were coming up with uh, 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 disagreeable, at least, uh, toxicity studies, uh, and uh, therefore uh, removed from the marketplace, uh, impacting uh, many people that had grown used to and accustomed to using those products. In terms of the uh, uh, follow-up analyses, there were 500 new studies uh, for cyclamate that showed no cancer. A tremendous amount of research was stimulated by this decision because of the marketplace dynamics of cyclamate. 
Uh, FDA would still not approve this. Uh, it could not show it was not a carcinogen. This is kind of a unique sort of uh, approach to science. The Society of Toxicology published uh, a position paper uh, stating that this was a classical example of how not to interpret uh, toxicology uh, data. In 1984, there was a petition to reinstate uh, cyclamate based on uh, 15 epidemiological studies. These studies show that neither saccharin nor cyclamate uh, cause bladder cancer. In 1985, there was an FDA cancer assessment uh, committee that actually, uh, from a technical basis, uh, exonerated cyclamate. Uh, in 1985, there was also a National Academy of Sciences panel uh, that uh, exonerated cyclamate. Uh, it still remained uh, banned. So why, you might ask, is cyclamate still banned if the preponderance of science uh, supports its use as a food additive? Uh, in fact, it is approved uh, and used in 40 countries, the National Academy of Sciences, the World Health Organization, the European Economic Community all consider it safe. The FDA scientists themselves consider it safe. Is this, in fact, just a failure of FDA to admit a mistake? Is this, uh, you have to ask your yourself, uh, politics or uh, and, and perhaps not good science. Uh, all of these, again, open to question, but the fact is that cyclamate is still banned. Our next uh, sweetener food additive, uh, many of you uh, know this as NutraSweet, aspartame. It was discovered in 1960 by a surly scientist uh, by accident. Uh, it is uh, very similar to a gastric peptide, aspartyl phenylalanine, a little bit of a change in terms of it has a one methyl ester. It's 180 times sweeter than sugar. Uh, it's a dipeptide, so um, very close to a natural product in terms of containing aspartic acid and phenylalanine. Uh, there's no uh, sweet effect when you look at the uh, individual uh, peptides. Uh, but together they do have this uh, sweet sensory uh, impact. Aspartame does uh, enhance the flavor of fruits. Its shelf life is significant, six months. Uh, it works best in dry formulations. However, it's not heat stable. Uh, its sweetness does vary a little bit with product pH and temperature. Uh, it does have uh, at least a linkage in terms of natural product safety. Uh, it is found uh, as uh, a natural product in dairy, meat, cereal, uh, grains, and several vegetables. In 1974, there was a manufacturer's petition, petition for aspartame as a food additive. Uh, in this petition, there were 113 supporting studies. This is the most ever. Recall, in terms of the time frame, uh, the uh, food technology, food processing marketplace, and uh, the consuming public had just lost saccharin. They had just lost cyclamate as alternatives or low-calorie uh, food additives for sweeteners. Uh, so there was a tremendous market potential uh, for a new compound. It was approved, but it was stayed. Stay means uh, that it, uh, uh, it, it goes through the regulatory approval, um, but uh, it doesn't go through a final approval process in stasis. Uh, there was a request for more information, more uh, data. 
There was concerns about brain damage, mental retardation, and endocrine disruption, primarily because phenylalanine uh, did have neurotoxic uh, potential. Uh, spartic acid and glutamate are neurotransmitters, and so the relationship of these chemicals from dietary intake uh, in food products uh, was of concern, even though these are this is uh, a naturally occurring uh, set of amino acids. So the follow-up analyses uh, in terms of brain and endocrine uh, disruption were negative. It was approved uh, by FDA in 1981, a key date. The label, however, must uh, indicate, and you've all read this yourself if you've ever uh, picked up a can of uh, diet soda, uh, phenylketonurics contain phenyl, contains uh, phenylalanine. Uh, these particular individuals with this deficiency actually uh, will develop a condition called maple syrup uh, urine syndrome on exposure to large amounts of phenylalanine. The ADI uh, for aspartame was calculated out to be 40 milligrams per kilogram body weight by uh, the World Health Organization. Now, in terms of some of the follow-up analyses and epidemiology, uh, all food additives always face uh, a tremendous amount of uh, uh, research review and uh, per perhaps controversy when the, that research produces a, a controversial finding. Uh, this particular one in November 1996 from the Journal of Neuropathology and Experimental Neurology is an example of some of the data that causes uh, you know, at least uh, uh, headlines for a few days. Uh, this particular uh, title of this peer-reviewed article was Increasing Brain Tumor Rates, Is There a Link to Aspartame? Uh, essentially, uh, this paper was trying to show from a retrospective epidemiological uh, point of view that uh, here in 1981, when aspartame was increased, about a three-year lag time, and then a statistically significant jump in uh, brain tumor incident rates. Uh, this work has been uh, debated uh, and challenged on many levels. Uh, uh, primarily because uh, tumor incident rates uh, vary uh, um, and they're pretty noisy uh, that in fact if you were to take this and broaden it out in terms of uh, retrospective epidemiological analysis you would see variations like this and this is coincidental. Uh, there's not necessarily a demonstration and, and this happens quite often in epidemiological analysis and that's perhaps why the authors uh, pose this as a rhetorical question, is there a link to aspartame? Uh, and uh, the uh, most evidence uh, follow-up of this is, is probably not is the answer to that particular question. In terms of some of the other aspects of uh, aspartame that we need to be concerned about in terms of its toxicological uh, potential, it does break down to uh, phenylalanine and aspartic acid and uh, methanol in terms of digestion processes and biotransformation. The aspartic acid is transaminated to uh, glutamate. Uh, both of these are neurotransmitters. Uh, there is a diketopiperazine metabolite as well. In terms of some of the conclusions we might find in terms of the toxicological analysis of aspartame, uh, all toxicology studies are negative at relevant doses. There is ongoing scientific study of this compound, and it has a lot to do with the, with the uh, insertion of this sweetener into uh, the human diet. Um, 
There may be some evidence for idiosyncratic responses, things like migraine uh, headaches, uh, uh, urticaria, um, or hives. Uh, Spartame at this point in time has been endorsed by the American Medical Association, the American Academy of Pediatrics, the American Diabetic Association, the American Dental Association. So the professional organizations have uh, uh, you know, entrusted uh, their experts within their organizations to review the data and come up with uh, an endorsement. Switching over next to the phenolic antioxidants, BHA and BHT. BHA is butylated hydroxy anisole. BHT is butylated hydroxytoluene. Uh, these have been around for quite some time. They're synthetic antioxidants. Uh, they have antimicrobial properties. Uh, they're best known for preventing oxidation or rancidity in fats. Um, they help uh, uh, remove uh, some of the negative sensory attributes of oxidized fat, the off taste and smell that we sometimes uh, observed uh, as products age. It's used in a variety of foods, from dry cereals to mixes, soups, uh, potatoes, uh, potato flakes, um, and uh, cosmetics. It markedly increases the shelf-like life of these uh, dry cereals from two to about 50 days, and this has to do with, again, its antioxidant activity. Uh, it greatly reduces the cost of products because there will be more shelf life uh, of products, uh, more uh, life uh, pre-processing and post-processing in terms of home cooking. In terms of its uh, grass status, it was granted that with the FFDCA amendments in 1958. It was later modified. Uh, we now find that tolerances for BHA and BHT are set uh, in each food. And uh, for example, uh, two one-hundredths of a percent of oil fat content is uh, the limit. Um, the ADI is calculated at 0.3 milligrams per kilogram for um, uh, BHA and 0.125 milligrams for um, BHT. Some of the toxicology concerns associated with BHA and BHT are uh, liver enlargement, uh, the fact that it is stored in fat, uh, so there is a potential for bioaccumulation. Uh, it is slowly excreted. Um, we have observed in terms of research studies uh, in vitro, uh, slowing of DNA and RNA synthesis. Uh, there is uh, some potential for reduced cell growth in in vitro studies as well. And the observation of a linkage between uh, BHA, BHT with chromosomal anomalies. Uh, there is as well some documented uh, uh, case studies of idiosyncratic sensitivity of uh, these particular compounds in terms of food intolerance of foods treated with these phenolic antioxidants. From a carcinogenicity point of view, uh, these VHA, uh, BHT uh, do show positive lesions in the rat for stomach on toxicology trial. Uh, there are negative in species without this for stomach uh, and also in the National Cancer Institute uh, rat study. Uh, it is po positive uh, as a carcinogen in fish uh, studies. And essentially the results in terms of its uh, carcinogenic potential, we seem to find that the, the effects seem to depend a little bit on dose, timing, uh, tissue, and species. So there is a species 
uh, sensitivity a species specific response in terms of potential for carcinogenesis. Um, we do find because it is an antioxidant and we recall that oxidation does have a lot of uh, negative effects when we recall our, our brief uh, sub-lecture on oxidative stress. Um, because this is an antioxidant, there is a potential protective uh, activity as well um, in vivo. Some of the positive effects, it does inhibit cytochrome P450 activation of some chemicals uh, in the process of uh, toxication. Uh, it does induce phase two enzymes as well. Um, phase two enzymes help increase the polarity of the molecules in the biotransformation process to aid in elimination. And again, a positive effect of these particular antioxidants. As well, on the other side of it, to remember that oxidized fats are not regarded as a positive thing. Um, oxidized fats can lead to a vitamin E deficiency, uh, primarily through uh, an antioxidant relationship. There's a potential for oxidative damage to cell membranes from free radical processes associated with fat oxidation. And some oxidated, oxidized fats uh, have been regarded as mutagenic, carcinogenic, or cytotoxic. And so by inhibiting these processes in the food preservation uh, antioxidant status of foods, uh, there have been a positive health effect associated with the consumption of these antioxidants. The next category we'll uh, take a look at here is the category of sulfites uh, that we talked briefly about in our food intolerance lecture. Uh, sulfites are antioxidant and antimicrobial. Uh, they have the action of being uh, preventing uh, enzymatic and non-enzymatic browning of food. Sulfites have been used, as it turns out, as a food additive uh, since ancient times. Uh, the amount added to food is limited by the off taste that can be developed uh, and some of the uh, nutritive value and legal regulations associated with uh, the use of sulfites as a food product. Uh, problems associated with sulfites, it does destroy vitamin B1 in food. There's a small percentage of individuals who have these uh, sensitivities to free sulfite. Uh, in terms of uh, the uh, types of people, we talked about asthmatics or atropic individuals that have high sensitivity to various types of uh, food uh, chemicals. Uh, but overall, less than 1% of consumers have this particular problem. The food sensitivity, food allergy response uh, can be severe to mild. It can uh, actually uh, progress to anaphylactic shock and death uh, with uh, some individuals. In 1958, uh, it also was uh, uh, given prior grass status. Uh, in 1986, it, this particular status was revoked uh, 10 years ago on fresh fruits and vegetables. The reason was with the new um, epidemiological studies on sulfite sensitivity, there was a problem in that uh, when you walked up to a salad bar, even if you had a known allergy or sensitivity to sulfites, uh, there wouldn't be a label where you could make a smart consumer choice. Uh, sulfites were used on salad bars uh, to preserve uh, the uh, vegetables, the lettuce, to, to impact uh, the rate of browning of those materials. 
1987, all packaged food and uh, alcoholic beverages uh, with greater than 10 part per million sulfites uh, required a label. Uh, the ATF, or Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms Agency, uh, manages sulfites in wine. Uh, less than 350 part per million is the limit. Uh, the average is about 150 parts per million. Uh, in terms of some of the properties of sulfites, they do help retain some nutrients. Uh, obviously, if you have an antioxidant compound, in a food product that is being challenged by oxidation, the other antioxidants such as carotene, beta-carotene, uh, will remain uh, uh, in status in terms of its antioxidant capacity. It is prohibited from use on fresh meats, uh, vegetables, and thiamine foods. Uh, it does help retain color in terms of uh, things like meat products from oxidation, but it does have the potential to destroy vitamin E. The ADI has been calculated at 0.7 milligrams per kilogram body weight. Uh, in terms of exposure, that would be uh, about uh, 37 milligrams per 120 pound person. Uh, the estimated daily intake on the basis of diet surveys and the concentrations assayed in particular foods calculates out to about six to 10 milligrams. And so we're about one-third or one-fourth of the ADI on a daily basis. Our final uh, food additive uh, that we're going to review today is MSG, also known as monosodium glutamate. It's a flavor enhancer. It was discovered in 1907 when uh, a, a Japanese researcher, uh, Kikune Ikeidi, um, actually uh, saw crystals appear at uh, the bottom of a kelp soup bowl that had uh, dried out. Uh, in terms of its manufacturing, it's been synthesized from fermented starch, uh, sugar cane, and sugar beets. Uh, it actually, in terms of its sensory perception, uh, is categorized as the fifth basic taste, uh, umami. Is, uh, or savory is how it is uh, classified in sensory science. Uh, it is the sodium salt of glutamic acid. Uh, it's one of the most common amino acids uh, in food and in our bodies, uh, so it is a natural product. Uh, it's about one-fifth of our body protein. In our normal diet, we actually consume about 0.5 uh, to one gram per day of free glutamate. In terms of bound glutamate, that increases to about 20 grams per day. Uh, so in terms of dietary exposure uh, to MSG as a food additive, it's on a relatively small fraction on a relative basis. Uh, glutamate foods uh, include uh, cheese, meat, peas, tomatoes, uh, mushrooms, and some others. The CRS, or Chinese Restaurant Syndrome, is where you have probably heard of most of the impact in terms of MSG as a food additive. Uh, Chinese Restaurant Syndrome is a self-diagnosed uh, condition. Typically, uh, people find themselves uh, having an onset of some sort of symptoms about 20 minutes in a duration for about two hours. These symptoms can include face flushing, uh, a numbness or paresthesia, chest pains, labored breathing, dizziness, some sweating, nausea, vomiting. Uh, this complex of uh, symptoms is referred to as 
MSG symptom complex. In terms of uh, the uh, study of uh, CRS, most controlled studies uh, fail to confirm uh, that uh, this in fact does happen. Double-blind placebo, um, two people that were sensitive found that there was not a dose-response relationship. And we've learned in toxicology that in terms of uh, it's critical that we find a mathematical relationship between dose and response. There seems to be equal symptoms at any dose of MSG. About 43% of 3,000 individuals surveyed uh, had some discomfort after any meals. And so they had food intolerance, in a, a generalized food intolerance, uh, that went beyond the potential for MSG exposure. About 1 to 2% have some sort of uh, allergy or intolerance uh, associated with it, not necessarily a Chinese restaurant syndrome, but it is a uh, specific allergy of the individual to that particular chemical compound. Other concerns associated with MSG include, uh, come from the fact that uh, glutamate is a neurotransmitter. We find that if we inject MSG into young rats, we do uh, see brain lesions. There is no effect orally at any dose, up to 40% in the diet uh, for adult rab uh, rodents, uh, dogs, uh, rabbits, or monkeys. So no effect orally on dose in terms of response. And we found no effect in humans up to doses of 120 grams per day. In terms of the safety studies regarding MSG, uh, the FASEB in 1980 and 1986 FDA, 1991 the European Economic Community, and 1992 the American Medical Association uh, essentially uh, concluded that a small percentage of the population may have this uh, sensitivity to high-dose MSG or Chinese restaurant syndrome. There might be a problem uh, with atopic children uh, but overall, there's no major health problems associated with MSG or the use of MSG in foods. Uh, the ADI uh, was, because there is no dose-response relationship, uh, remains as unspecified. Uh, it's the safest category in terms of the safety assessment of food additives. The conclusions that we have uh, about uh, MSG are that uh, Chinese restaurant syndrome is not reproducible. Uh, there might be some allowance, uh, especially for idiosyncratic effects based on epidemiology in select populations. Some populations uh, do carry a potential for allergy or food intolerance associated with MSG as a food additive. Uh, the preponderance of scientific studies suggests that neurotransmitter uh, relationships of MSG are not a problem. All of the agencies in terms of uh, food safety and public health in the United States and worldwide regard MSG as safe, and it does have grass status. Well, that gives you a quick uh, additional overview or focus of these uh, six uh, food additives, the ones perhaps that uh, over the past 25 years or so have uh, appeared most often in the news, uh, primarily because they impact uh, our daily diet, especially if we uh, are counting calories and looking for sugar substitutes. Uh, if we have a sweet tooth and uh, we can't afford the calories associated with uh, uh, sugar sweeteners, uh, these uh, are a highly desirable alternative.
Well, the next two lectures, what we'll do is start looking at uh, other aspects of uh, food additives, but those that come from either the food production sense in terms of uh, genetically modified organisms and how they are in the human food chain, and then another lecture on food irradiation as a uh, technique for food processing to minimize the potential for foodborne illness. Until that time, we'll see you again. Thanks.